Good morning. Feel free to take a seat. I'm Mark, if I've not met you. Welcome. This is the first Sunday in October, uh, which is when we typically celebrate our birthday as a church. Uh, yeah, right? 14. So we kind of, we're starting to want to drive, but we're not ready yet. I don't know. I don't know what the analogy is for a 14-year-old church, but that's where we're at. Um, a testament to God's grace. So we're grateful, very grateful for uh, 14 years of life and ministry here in this neighborhood and community and all of the good things that we have received from God as a gift. I feel like there was one other thing. Oh, connected to Summer's announcement about uh, providing meals. Um, that is one of the, the ministries that we really pride ourselves on as a church. Um, we were the recipients of that uh, on a number of occasions, especially when we had our kids, and we are about to enter the season of babies. So I'm just letting you know that meals will be appreciated by many. Um, one of the most surefire ways to ruin a movie for me, or to have a, ru a movie ruin itself, is when a character in the movie says just the exact right thing the exact right moment, because that never happens in real life. <laughs> and uh, I feel this acutely. I feel like I'm the king of thinking of the perfect response a good 45 minutes after the conversation has ended as I'm driving home. Like, oh, I should have said that. That would have been, that would have convinced everybody, or would have been the perfect one-liner, or would have been just the right tender thing to say in that moment. But I have a lot of experience of saying either the wrong thing at the right time, or the right thing at the wrong time, you know, long after the conversation has ended. But to say the right thing at the right time uh, is powerful, right? It's pretty amazing. Well, this week, as we look uh, at chapters 3 and 4 of Acts, uh, Peter finds himself with a unique opportunity to say the right thing at the right time. And we see that the Holy Spirit fills him with power and the ability and the right words to say the right thing at the right time, and it's, it's powerful. Uh, I want to recap where we've been in the book of Acts. So we're going through the book of Acts, which is, is way too much for us to really fully tackle this fall. So you, you have to go and you have to read it on your own. It's action-packed. It's worth doing. Um, but last week at the beginning of chapter 3, Peter and John, as they were going, right, as they were just about their daily lives going to prayer at the temple, they encounter a man who had been crippled from birth, and the, by the power of, of Christ through them, uh, they, they heal him. He's healed, miraculously. And today we get to look at happens right after that. Right? The, the passage ends with the people who witnessed this miracle being amazed. They were in awe of what happened. And there is... Um, you know, so we remember that Luke and Acts were written together, right? Luke wrote both. And it's kind of one long uh, collection of Jesus' work. The Gospel of Luke devoted to Jesus' work while he was here on earth. The Gospel of Acts devoted to Jesus' work through his spirit-empowered church after he ascended to heaven. And in the middle of Luke, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says this. He says, when you're brought before the synagogues, rulers, and authorities, don't worry about how you'll defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. 
So with that promise of Jesus to his disciples ringing in our ears, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read and tell, I'm going to do a little bit of both, um, parts of Acts 3 and 4 here. So th- this is one of those uh, parts of, of Scripture where it's just best to let your imagination run. right? Picture yourself at the scene. Peter and John have just healed this man. So while the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. Then when Peter saw this, he said to them, Fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It's Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him as you can all see. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent, then, and turn to God, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Peter goes on. Uh, And he connects Jesus, the story of Jesus, to the story of the Old Testament, the the story of the Hebrew Scriptures. He's speaking to a largely Jewish audience, and he helps them understand how Jesus didn't come to abolish the Law and the Prophets, but came to fulfill them. And then he makes one final appeal, an invitation. When God raised up his servant, Jesus, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. So this is all happening kind of just right at the entrance to the temple. And so the, the temple, even though Rome is in charge, the temple and the Jewish people kind of had their own, uh, own police force and own, own government as well, and so they're disturbed by what they're hearing. And so the, the chief priests and the, the leaders and the temple guard, they come, and they're like, what is going on here? And it's evening time, so they throw Peter and John in prison, and they're like, this has to stop, but we'll figure out what to do with them tomorrow. So the next morning comes, and all of the leaders of Israel gather together and bring Peter and John before them. And um, let's see here. They had Peter and John brought before them, and this is the first question they asked them. By what power or what name did you do this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, remember Jesus' promise? You'd be brought before the synagogues, the rulers, the leaders. Don't worry about what you're going to say. The Spirit is going to fill you. He's going to give you the words to say. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. 
Well, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. It's powerful. Well, they kick him out again. They confer amongst themselves. They're like, what do we do? And, and what's, what's beautiful is that the man who was healed, he's clinging on to Peter and John. He's there the whole time. He's there as they're telling the story of Jesus to all of the surprised onlookers. And he's there as they're brought before the leaders of Israel the next day. They can't deny what had happened, but they don't like what had happened. So they tell them, hey, you guys just need to stop teaching and preaching about Jesus. Uh, to which... Peter responds, do you think that we're going to listen to you or to God? <laughs> Which makes more sense here? Uh, and um, finally, they threaten them further and then just kick them out. Peter and John return to the believers, uh, tell them what's happened, and the believers start to pray together. And what they pray is fascinating. And this is, you've been very patient. This is, we're, we've come through like two whole chapters here. So uh, this is the end of chapter 4. The believers have received Peter and John back, and they start to pray. And this is what they pray. Lord, consider their threats, those who have been in power, Herod, Pilate, and others. Consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Lord, be our teacher this morning. As we consider the words of Peter and the lives of Peter and John and these early believers, fill us with your spirit as well. The same spirit that gave them such boldness, that gave them the right words to say at the right time. Make our lives and our speech a testimony to your resurrection, to your power, to your love, and to your grace. We ask this in the name of Jesus who saves us. Amen. All right. Summer uh, went away for a two-day spiritual direction training retreat this last week, which meant I was solo parent for a couple of days, uh, which was great. Um, and w when she came back, we were talking about some of the, the classes that she was in, some of what she was hearing, and she referenced uh, one of the guys who was her main teacher, who over the course of his life uh, described kind of the growth of his faith and the growth of his, his walk with Christ as more and more being on the lookout for grace that that was one of the ways he felt like Christ was growing uh, his faith in him, was that he was increasingly searching and looking for grace, where it was in his own life, where it was in the lives of others. And I feel like that's, um, there's a lot that we could look at in these two chapters, but that's how I want to approach this, is I want to be on the lookout for grace in these two chapters. And I think there's two key areas where we find it. We, we, can, we could, again, we could dive into every little nuance of this passage and find it, but the two, the two big areas where I see grace, God's undeserved favor at work here, are first in the content of Peter's message. Peter's preaching a sermon. He's telling a story. 
Uh, and this is actually a pattern that we see, we'll start to see develop throughout Acts, where there's some event that happens, something either miraculous happens or there's some sort of opposition or people, you know, believers are brought uh, before leaders. And how that is viewed is an opportunity to tell the story of Jesus. And so Peter does that on two occasions. One, in front of all the onlookers who are amazed at the miracle, and secondly, in front of all the leaders of the synagogue. He highlights in both instances the, uh, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Those are key events. And, and you know, we're, we're just a few months removed from these events actually having taken place in the disciples' lives. Um, but already they understand the key pivotal role that the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus played. So he highlights those events and makes an appeal to those who are listening to respond, an invitation. And the invitation is some version of turn, repent, turn to God, right? Turn away from sin and away from yourself and turn towards God and receive. This is grace. Grace is this free gift of life, this free gift of salvation that God offers to us, not because we've done anything, not because we've said the right words, not because of anything in us, but because of everything in Christ. We get to have life. One of my, well, a couple here, a couple of, of examples from that, um, that sermon that, that Peter gives. The first is in explaining how this man was even healed. Right? This is an example of grace. He wasn't healed because he was righteous or because he was doing anything right. He wasn't healed because Peter and John were anything special. He, Peter and John explicitly say, like, we, we're human just like you. There's nothing special about us. But it was faith in the name of Jesus that this man whom you see and know was made strong. It's Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him. This is a demonstration of of God's grace. It's an example of the kind of thing that he wants to do in all of your lives. So then Peter extends an invitation to respond to this grace. And this, this is one of my favorite parts of this passage. Repent then, he says, turn. Turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Who here doesn't long for that? Refreshing from the Lord. Doesn't that sound good? I'm desperate for that. <laughs> I think our world is desperate for that. It's the forgiveness of sin, and it's this refreshing gift of life, a renewal, right? The renewal of all things. This is what God is up to in the world, the refreshing of all things. I'm hungry for that. Finally, Peter wraps up his sermon by again inviting them to turn. To turn to Christ and to turn away from evil. And we see this pattern here where there is an extension of grace, right? Grace, first and foremost, is a free gift. Nothing we can do to earn it. But it invites us into a response. It invites us to turn, to turn away from sin. This is what it means to repent not just to be sorry for our sins, though that's a part of it, but it's to turn, to change direction. Rather than serving ourselves, serving sin, 
serving whatever it is we think that will bring us this refreshment, which inevitably fails to bring us refreshment, and then turning to God, who in Christ brings seasons and times of refreshment. Oh. Later on in Peter's life, he wrote a couple of letters. We have them in the New Testament. We call them very creatively First and Second Peter. In First Peter, uh, he... He writes, and you've, you've probably heard this before if you've been around the church, if you read the Bible. Um, Peter says this, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. Always be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. And I imagine that as he was writing that, he was thinking back to this time, just a couple of months after the death and resurrection of Jesus, when he and John went up to the temple and all of a sudden had a crowd in front of them that didn't know what to do with what they had just witnessed, with this miraculous healing, that that didn't know what to do with Peter and John. Uh, And Peter sees this as an opportunity to give a reason for the hope that he has. And the reason is God's grace this unmerited favor and delight that God shows his people. That's the reason for the hope that Peter has and the reason for the hope that we have. But it, I, I love that, that line that he writes, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you, because it begs a question, are we living life in such a way that those around us would ask that question? Do, do our lives sort of draw out those questions from people about the hope that we have and the joy that we have? I'll let you sit with that one for a second. So the other instance of grace, so that the first instance of grace in this passage is the content of the message. It's the gospel. It's the good news about Jesus that forgiveness and life are offered to us without cost because of what Christ has done. The second instance of grace that we see, though, is in Peter himself. As I mentioned, we're just most likely a couple of months away from the death and resurrection of Jesus. And if you'll remember, one of those things that happens, or one of of the events that happens around that time is Peter finds himself in the courtyard of the guards. And Jesus at this point has been, he's pretty popular. A lot of of the city, most of the city knows who he is. Um, And therefore, Peter is one of his primary followers. People recognize him. Uh, And three times, people come up to him and they say, hey, you're one of those Jesus follower guys, aren't you? And three times, Peter says no. You've got the wrong man. I don't know him. Three times, Peter denies him. Denies that he even knows Christ. And yet the grace that Peter has experienced does not let that moment define him. It's not long after that, after the resurrection, when Jesus approaches Peter and asks him three times, uh, do you love me? Right? And Peter by the third time he realizes what Jesus is doing, right? He's, um, he's restoring him. He's saying that denial, uh, we're not going to let that define your life. Grace means that through no work of your own, simply because I love you and I've forgiven you, uh, I'm actually going to build my church on you, Peter, you who denied me. And so the grace in Peter's life is that just a few months removed from denying Christ, he would be the primary mouthpiece of the gospel. And one of the fascinating things uh, after he 
he presents the story of Jesus to those amazed onlookers, uh, and the, the guards throw him into jail. There's this little comment um, that, oh yeah, a few more people believed in the message, and it grew, the, the, the believers grew to 5,000 men, not counting women and children. And the last number count we had was somewhere on the order of like 3,000. So uh, it was a fairly effective sermon <laughs> that Peter preached uh, that, that evening. Peter has experienced uh, grace in his life, and it has changed him. Right? Being with Jesus changed him. And the leaders noted that. I love that, pa- that part of this passage as well, right? That the leaders noted that these were just ordinary men. But they were amazed at their courage and took note that they had been with Jesus. Being with Jesus is the experience, or is, it opens us up that experience of grace that changes us, transforms us from cowardice to courage, from denying that we even knew Christ to preaching and testifying such that about 2,000 more men and countless other women and children believed were added to the church. So I hope that we hear in Peter's invitations in his sermon, I hope that we hear that invitation for us the connection between grace and repentance, that there's nothing you can do to earn your salvation. There's nothing you can do to earn God's favor. He already is delighting in you. But the invitation with that is to turn, to turn away from whatever would lead you away from God and to turn towards God, to experience that refreshment. And then there's the example of Peter, which is also for us that whatever we think might disqualify us from being a spokesperson for God, for being a messenger of the gospel, whatever we think uh, disqualifies us from that, whatever we feel shame in our lives for, that is not how God sees us. That is not how Christ views us. The power of God's grace in our lives is the power to be people who fail miserably and yet are still forgiven and used by God for his kingdom purposes. I found myself reflecting on, on, on Peter and, I mean, here he is, this unschooled, ordinary man. Um, but I thought, you know what he did well? He had familiarized himself well with, I think, two stories. He knew the story of Jesus and he knew how it connected to the broader story of what God was doing through the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew, and for us now, the Old and New Testament. We, the invitation here is to know well the story of Jesus. But I think it's also to know our own stories well and to know how that, that story of Jesus, how the grace of Jesus has intersected with our story, to be able to articulate it, to be able to tell that story. I think that's a powerful powerful testimony that we all have, each one of us here, without having had to go to seminary, without having had to take extensive Bible courses or anything like that, we have the ability to know the story of Jesus and to know our story and the ways that those stories intersect. And I think that has the power to transform the world. And I think that's what we see in Acts. These were simple people, but they knew Jesus' story and they knew their own story. And this little movement from Podunksville in the middle of nowhere uh, transformed the world as we know it. 
it's a reflection of, of two things I think that we have to hold in tension, which is the objective truth of Jesus and his death and resurrection and the experience that we have of how that death and resurrection affects us, how his grace changes us. The objective truth and the experiential reality that we have. We hold those together. Well, finally, where this passage ends, I think, is, is very interesting as well. It ends with the believers gathering together to pray. And after an experience of being thrown in jail and being brought before the leaders and threatened, you would think, if, if I was writing my prayer after that, it would be a prayer for protection, for safety, and for no more jail. Uh, but that is not what they pray for. Right? They come together. They praise God. They recount to God. They, they, they do tell God. They're like, Lord, pay attention to these threats and give us more boldness. Send us out into the world to speak this story, to tell this story, Jesus' story, our story, and the intersection of those stories, to tell those stories with boldness. Some of the commentaries were commenting on this this word boldness that appears here. Uh, and some of the different definitions were it's, it's a lucid and daring statement. Uh, another way to interpret it means it means telling it all, right? Not holding back, telling the whole truth. There's a conviction, but also an articulation of undeniable truths. This is what it means to speak with boldness. I think that's another invitation for us this morning, is to join these early Christians in praying for boldness. If you're like me, I, I don't find myself often naturally bold. Maybe some of you, that's a gift that you have, and God bless you, that's awesome. Continue being bold. But if you're like me, it's something that uh, I need to ask God for. And if the book of Acts is any indication, it's a prayer that God loves to answer. So I think there's three invitations for us this morning. One is to know the story of Jesus. To know how it fits into God's bigger story from Genesis to Revelation. To, to steep in the Gospels. To know Jesus' life and teaching. To know the story of Jesus and to know the grace that is evident there. The free gift of forgiveness of life. I think the second invitation is to know our own story as well. And this is a lifelong work. I'm, I'm 40, and I'd like to think that I know myself a little better than I did when I was 20. But I also like to think that at 60, I'm going to know myself that much more. To know my strengths and my weaknesses, my tendencies, what I tend to do when I feel stressed, what my natural inclinations are. And I trust that as I know my own story more, I'm going to know God's grace more in my own story, in my own life. I'm going to see, slowly, most likely, but I'm going to see transformation. I'm going to see change over a lifetime of confessing my weaknesses, confessing those places that I run to when I feel stress, when I feel anxiety, and receiving gracefully a changed heart from God.
So knowing the story of Jesus, knowing our own story, and then finally, the third invitation is pray for boldness. Pray for the courage to tell these stories in the midst of our world that desperately needs to hear them, desperately needs that refreshment that comes from God. We, we come to this table every week. We didn't always used to. We used to do it once a month. And in the course of conversations among leadership a number of years ago, we were like, no, we need to be reminded of the story of Jesus every week. I mean, that's, that's why we come together. That's why we gather. That's part of the value of being here together, is to be reminded of the story of Jesus and the ways that it intersects with our lives and the ways that it intersects with our neighbor's lives. That's why we come together in community. So as we prepare to come to remember Christ's death and resurrection, to participate in his life, death, and resurrection, um, I want to pray for us for a few minutes here. I'll leave a little space for some silence, but I want to pray for refreshment for you and for me, for our neighbors, that in every area of our lives we would experience and know a little bit of this refreshment that God promises to bring us. So let's go to the Lord and pray.